We're beginning a brand new series called Unwrapped. And, and this morning, we're looking at the story that opens up the story of Jesus. So it's like the story before the story. And I think what God has to say to us is going to be really, really powerful for our time. And it begins with a question that I've been asking myself all week. And the question is this, who are you becoming? Who am I becoming? I think as we dive into this story, you're going to see this question lived out and asked all over the place. And and we're going to zero in and try to answer this question where we look at what kind of person is God wanting you and I to become. And then ultimately, we're going to land the plane looking at how does he want us to become that kind of person. But but when I ask that question, who are you becoming? Maybe, Maybe you think to yourself, man, honestly, recently, I've been becoming a jaded person. I've been becoming bitter or resentful. Maybe something's been going on in your life recently or with the holiday season that that this season you find yourself becoming isolated. Or maybe you have hopes of becoming a really great husband or a really great dad or a great wife or a great friend or coworker or or teacher or parent and, and you have this desire of becoming. Here's the thing about becoming. All of us are becoming something. A question to maybe consider is, is the person you're becoming worth becoming? All of us are on a trajectory. All of us are on a path of becoming something. And I I fundamentally believe that who we are becoming is a quarter of the experiences we have. So 25% of who we are becoming is just made up by the experiences that we have. But the other three quarters, the other 75% are affected by how we respond to the experiences that we have. That who we are becoming is very deeply entwined with how we are responding to the things around us. So I'll ask that question again. Who are you becoming? And who ultimately does God want you to become? You know, I've desperately desired to become one of those families that takes really, really great Christmas family photos. You know what I mean? And and I'm I'm, I'm not going to make eye contact with you, but I've seen what you've been posting on Instagram and Facebook and the ones you sent in the mail. And you guys are too beautiful. You're too awesome. You're too together. And I've literally been afraid. And I haven't been showing my wife, Sarah, any of your photos because I'm like, if she sees this, she's just going to be jealous. And like, you know, we're not going to be able to take this. And so I'm like, you know what? This year, maybe this is the year where we like break the code and we become the family that takes the perfect Christmas family photo. And we can post it everywhere and it'll be amazing. We had a, a student in our high school ministry who, who volunteered to take our photos for us. And because she's so amazing, she was able to document and come up with a few of these really, really awesome photos. But those are not the ones I'm going to show you, okay? I'm going to show you the ones that actually sort of portray who it is that we are becoming. And so enjoy these photos. This was the Holmstrom family photo shoot. Okay, so let's take this in together, okay? Let's process this together. So very first off the bat, we've got Brent. So I've got an oldest son, Charlie, and then Brinley's three and Lila's one. Just take a look at Brinley's face. You know what I mean? I don't know what we did to her. We gave her so much candy leading up to this. We actually had a friend who told us, they said, hey, if you want to take a perfect family photo, you need to give your kids marshmallows. That's the key, right? Here's the problem. That didn't work for us, okay? We gave her marshmallows and she crashed. And I love it. You can kind of barely see it, but Sarah is like slyly handing the marshmallows to Lila. You know what I mean? Like Lila's just like about to to divulge this. All right, let's go to the next one. Oh, I love this photo. I love this photo. Um, So I'm just like, Lila, please just like look in the right direction. I don't care what face you make. Just look in the right direction. I'm trying to point your, hey, there's the camera, Lila. There's the camera. Charlie's experiencing early onset narcolepsy, it looks like. He has... He has fully fallen asleep at this point. Um, 
And then Brinley, I love this girl so much, but she is not afraid to yell at anybody. And there were some really innocent, nice bikers who were riding right by us. And she's just yelling at these people. You know what I mean? Just screaming her head off. All right, let's go to the next picture. Next, oh, I love this one. All right, th- this might be my favorite one, okay? So Sarah and I, we were like, you know what? Let, let's get a candid photo. We need something that, that, where we just look like we're like really in love and like it's amazing and, and our kids are awesome, right? Well, simultaneously, simultaneously, um, Charlie is, you know, all the blood is draining to his head right now. Any chance of going to Harvard, out the window. That's horrible parenting. You shouldn't do that to your kids. Uh, next up, Brinley, breaking the cardinal rule of showing your underwear in a picture. That's just no good. That is not good. And there's, there's Brinley doing that thing. But my absolute favorite is Lila, right? Lila is having a near-death experience. She's literally, she is about, she doesn't know. She's counting her minutes. You know what I mean? She's just, she doesn't know what is coming her way. I love that photo. All right, let's go to the next one. I think we have maybe one more. Oh, I love this one. I love this. At this point, I'm just tired of Lila. You know what I mean? Like, not in general, but right now, I'm just tired of Lila. And I'm like, Lila, just turn around. She's like, I'll just moon everybody. That would be a great idea. So she's mooning everybody. Again, Brindley, that is just her personality right there, doing her thing. Let's see, do we have any more photos? I forget. Yes, our last one. Oh, I love this one. Okay, so in this photo, yeah, you think it's kind of cute, but it's not, okay? And here's why. Because... Charlie, we talked to him about this. Like, we're like, Charlie, the one thing you can't do, don't touch mom and dad's hair. Don't touch my hair. Like, we worked on this. You know what I mean? Don't mess it up. And he's just like, boom, fingers through, all the hair, messing up, doing his thing. Lila itching something. And then she's just running, right? She's just out of the frame running. And then Brinley, the classic pouting face, is just awesome. So that's our family, right? I mean, that's who we are becoming. That's really nice of you guys. You'll be getting those in the mail. That's really nice. That's really nice. That's who we're kind of becoming. And as I was thinking about this story, I was thinking about this story, we're going to interact with some people who, who sort of set the stage for the big story of Jesus. And, and we quickly discover that they have become certain kinds of people and that one person in this story, one person in this story is on a journey of becoming something that I think God desires for every single one of us. Find me in Luke chapter one. We're going to be opening Luke chapter one. If you've got a Bible with you, awesome, or your phone, your iPad, whatever you have, find me in Luke chapter one, beginning in verse one. It starts like this. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So Luke. He's he's about to tell this amazing story. I mean, this story is going to blow people's minds. And he's aware of that. He knows that that as people begin to read this story and hear this story that he's telling, they're going to immediately want to assume there is no way that that happened. And so he has to kind of put his credentials first. He has to explain to them the process by which he came to this story. And what he says is there's a lot of stories out there. There's a lot of stories out there. But what I'm doing in my story is I'm carefully investigating. And if you look at the original language that um, the New Testament was written in, it was written in Koine Greek. And and this word carefully, it means diligently, with accuracy, precisely, intentionally. 
And so when Luke says, I've carefully investigated, he means he's put a lot of time and energy into this. And then this word investigated doesn't mean that uh, he was just kind of like mildly interested in the topic and so read some books somewhere. This actually means that Luke traveled with eyewitnesses. That, that Luke got up close and personal with the people who had actually interacted with Jesus. And so his investigation goes to the deepest place it could because he's got to tell the most amazing story in the world. And, and scholars have wondered, well, why did Luke decide to write this story? I mean, what, what was sort of his motivation? And, and historians and scholars have kind of settled on three big ideas for why Luke felt compelled to write this. The first one was this. That there were false stories of Jesus beginning to spread. He, he was th- things that he didn't do, things that he didn't teach were beginning to spread. And so Luke felt compelled. Now we got to write a true, accurate, historically backed up retelling of what Jesus actually did. The, the second reason is around the year 66 AD to about 73, which is when generally this was written, There was a Jewish-Roman war that that left many of the sites that Jesus would have taught in and done miracles in, left them absolutely decimated. And so he wrote, saying, man, people need to understand that this story of Jesus is not just some kind of fictitious, nice idea or theory, but that it's grounded in actual places. Like, the things that Jesus did, you can actually go back to those places and see where he did the ministry that he did. But then the third reason I thought was most compelling, scholars think that the third reason that Luke decided to write this letter, to this, this gospel, was because he was thinking about the next generation. Be- because he, he was worried. This was about 30 years after Jesus had died and risen from the grave. And so 30 years later, a whole crop of youngsters were growing up that didn't necessarily know the story firsthand of Jesus. And so Luke felt compelled thinking about the next generation, having a heart and a passion to pass the baton to the next generation so that they would know the message of Jesus. And so with that passion and with that excitement, Luke decided to write his gospel. Well, as we jump in, what we're going to look at is is sort of three descriptions of the kinds of people that God wants us to become. And the very first one, as we're going to see, is that God wants us to become someone who is blessed to be a blessing. That God wants us to become, oh, sorry, no, no. That God wants us to become someone who is faithful in the face of pain. That God wants us to become someone who's faithful in the face of pain. Check out verse five. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, There was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Here's a couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who they're lovers of God. Who when God says, love your enemies, they love their enemies. When God says, be faithful to your spouse, they're faithful to their spouse. When, when God says, serve, without expecting anything in return, they serve. That whatever he teaches about who they are, they believe. Whatever ways that God warns them and says, don't go in that direction, they obey and they follow. And, and maybe some of you are going, well, maybe they did that because life was easy for them. Or because there weren't any trials or struggles for them. But what's, what's, what's devastating, but helpful is that in the next verse, we see that wasn't the case for this couple. Verse 7, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both well advanced in years. You see, nowadays when, and maybe some of you know people like this and families like this, that when someone is unable to have a child, we grieve for them and we mourn with them. 
and our heart breaks for them. And we support them and pray for them and encourage them because that's an incredibly painful experience. In the first century, when this story was written and took place, it was a totally different perspective. In fact, women who couldn't, who couldn't have children, they were mocked. They were ridiculed. They were isolated from their communities. They were seen as cursed by God. And so here, here's this family, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who love God, who are faithful to God, even in the face of pain. That even when they're praying, God, where are you? Where are you? God, we want a child and, and nothing's happening. They remain faithful. And you see, this wasn't a struggle that they just had for a week or a year or a few years. I mean, this is their entire adult life with people looking at them and assuming things about them. And even though it would have been easy for them to say, you know what, God, if this is the hand that you dealt me, I want nothing to do with you. And yet this is a group of people who recognize that who they are becoming is someone who is faithful in the face of pain. That there's great joy and hope and life in being faithful even when it's difficult, even when the marriage is deteriorating, even when the friendship is breaking, even when things at work are not turning out the way you want them to be. To choose to be faithful to God, to be faithful to each other in the face of pain is exactly what this couple exhibited. There's a a young lady in our uh, high school ministry. She's one of our adult leaders, and um, her name is Emily. We call her Gunny because her name's Emily Gunstream. And, and so Gunny is in our, uh, one of our leaders, and, and she's just an amazing leader. I mean, for the last four years, I've just seen her pour so much into the girls that she mentors in her small group, and she picks them up and takes them places, and she just took a herd of people to journey to Bethlehem. I mean, this girl is always serving, and she's a full-time student, and she's holding down a job. I mean, she is faithful to a T. She'll oftentimes text me scriptures or cool quotes, and I'm like, I'm stealing that. That's a good sermon, you know? She's just awesome, and she's so faithful and just loves God. Well, a a few months ago, a few months ago, unfortunately, Gunny's car was stolen. And Gunny was like, man, I don't know what I'm going to do. She's got these responsibilities to, you know, to these students and to her work and to her school. And, and yet what was so encouraging is through this process of the police couldn't find her car. They had no idea where it was. Through this whole process, she didn't waver at all. That she continued to be faithful. She continued to serve. She continued to pour out. She was always asking the question, God, what, what am I to do? What am I to do? But it didn't stop her. It didn't stop her from trusting God. It didn't stop her from using her life to serve and to be faithful. Well, then it was crazy because um, a, a little while ago, she, she had not had a car for almost two months. And um, I, uh, she, she texted our group and she said, well, the police found the car. But the, the couple that had stolen the car, they were living in it. And, and there was parts of the engine that were messed up. And it's just not, things aren't looking good. And so I have no idea what I'm going to do. And there's a poor college student trying to figure out what to do. And a few Sundays ago, I, I was on the little platform stage and I was closing out uh, the 945 service and we had been talking a lot about generosity. Glenn had been preaching uh, about generosity and, and this guy came up to me and, and he grabbed my arm right after I just kind of closed. He grabbed my arm and he said, Eric, random, I just got a question for you. Do you know anybody who needs a car? And I was like, if it's a Lamborghini, I do. I know somebody. I've, I've been praying about this. I know somebody who needs one of those guys. And, and he's like, it's not a Lamborghini. I'm like, okay, well, um, let's see. And then all of a sudden, I thought of Gunny. I said, this is crazy. This is unbelievable. And so we got them connected. And, and what's awesome is 
Nothing's changed for Gunny. She's just driving a new car now that God just totally gave her. But she's serving. She's pouring out. She's doing school. She's investing in students. And maybe, maybe you're waiting for that prayer. Maybe that prayer has been answered for you. Or, or maybe you're in a season of waiting. And maybe God's going to answer it in just the way you want. Or maybe he's not. Maybe he's not going to answer that prayer exactly the way you want it to. But I wonder, I wonder if there's still so much life and purpose and meaning in being a person who says, I will be faithful even in the face of pain. I, I say this a lot whenever I do weddings, that the truest picture of a man or woman is painted in how they treat their spouse when no one's around. For me, it's a terrifying thought because that's really who I am. Because that's the broken part of me. I want to be someone who's faithful even when things are hard in my marriage. I want to be faithful when things are challenging with relationships with people. I want to be faithful when I'm struggling, when I'm going, God, I would really like you to show up just like this. I want to choose to be faithful even when it's painful, even when it's hard. Well, this, this couple, the story continues. Verse eight, once when Zachariah's division was on duty, he was serving as priest before God. He was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. And so here's this couple who's childless, who's hurting, who's faithful in the face of pain. And all of a sudden, God is gonna show up. God's going to show up and do something cool, and then God's going to show up and do something super cool. I mean, we're about to see something cool, and then we're going to see something out of this world. And they have no idea it's coming. And so the big idea leading into this is that God wants you to become someone who is blessed to be a blessing. God wants you to become someone who is blessed to be a blessing. Check out what happens in verse 11. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him. So Zechariah is in his temple by himself doing his religious duties. And all of a sudden, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. The angels always do this. It's so funny. They love it. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid. That's a horrible opening line. I don't know why they always say that, but they do. But the angel said to him, like, what, what are you not supposed to be afraid? Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. Pause. Zachariah, Zachariah. Something has just happened in his life that he's been hoping for for a number of years. And I imagine he's beginning to become filled with joy at the potential, at the reality, at the possibility that he is about to have a child. I mean, this is absolutely incredible. And then it says, many will rejoice. Many will rejoice because of his birth. And I think what Zachariah is thinking at this moment is he's going, our whole community is going to rejoice because they've been praying for us and, and they've seen the discouragement we've experienced. They've, they've felt our pain. And so this whole community is going to be amazed at this, but he has no idea what God is up to because God, when he gives us a blessing, when he gives us a gift, I, I, I usually think he intends us to give it away. I, I usually think he, he gives us a gift with the hope that we would generously give. And check out what happens next. It's so cool. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. 
He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. Many of the people of Israel he will bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord. And then if you underline in your Bibles, underline this part. And he will go back before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. We're going to come back to that. In the power and spirit of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. And then underline this part. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. As Zechariah is hearing these words, he's like, oh my gosh, I'm having a son, but something even more epic is happening. Something even more incredible that, that the people of God have been waiting 400 years for is about to happen. Zechariah, who's faithful, who's, who's spending time in the word, who's growing in his relationship with God, he knows that the people of God for 400 years have been waiting and waiting and waiting for God to show up in the form of a Messiah. And there were these murmurs and there were these stories that before the Messiah would come, that one would come before him who would be a messenger, who would be like the prophet Elijah, telling the people, hey, you're in sin, and there's a better way. There's repentance. There's forgiveness. And so as Zechariah hears this story, his mind is being blown because he's going, oh my gosh, God is about to fulfill what we've been waiting 400 years for him to do. It's recorded in in the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter three, verse one, it says this. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way for the Lord. Malachi 4, 5 says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Why why was it a great day? Because God was about to offer salvation and forgiveness to the whole world. It was good news of great joy. Why was it dreadful? Because for for those people, for the Israelites, at that time, they were absolutely convinced that the problem was Rome. And when Jesus showed up on the scene, he said, the problem isn't just Rome. The problem is sin within the human heart. And I've come to reveal that the sin in your heart is actually getting in the way of us. It's not just this nation state. It's actually the brokenness within you. But this prophet to come was prophesied 400 years before. And so Zechariah becomes quickly aware in this moment that God is giving him a blessing, that God has given him a gift to give away. A few weeks ago, as, as a family, we decided, man, we're, we need to get our carpets cleaned. I mean, we, we have carpets in our house, and, and to get new carpets when the kids spill their grape juice and Cheetos and all that stuff, like, it just doesn't make sense, right? Like, it costs way too much. So, so every year, we just get our carpets cleaned. And, and so I remember we were going to have this guy uh, come, clean our house, come clean our carpets, and uh, he was supposed to be there at 4 o'clock. And I remember right before I got out of work, I, I called Sarah, and I said, hey, babe, like, I got this great idea. I want to take you out tonight, okay? Like... I'm going to take you to Shakey's Pizza. That's where we're going tonight. And she's like, what is Shakey's? No, thank you. And I'm like, no, no. Shakey's is awesome. It's amazing. It's great. I grew up going there with my dad. We'd get the pizza and the mojos and the chicken. I was like, babe, you're going to love this place. You got to make dinner reservations. It's really busy. It's awesome. You got to go to Shakey's. And she's like, okay, but we got to get home by seven o'clock for this other event. And so I'm like, all right, well, great. I'll be home around four when the guy comes and we'll go home. We'll just have hours at Shakey's. It'll be a dream come true for all of us. And so four o'clock rolls around and, and the guy doesn't show up. 
4.30 rolls around, the guy's not there, and 5 o'clock rolls around. I remember I kind of had, I don't, I'm lying, I don't have small lunches. I just had a normal-sized lunch, but I was still hungry, okay? So I, I, I was beginning to grow a little impatient, right? And I was becoming more and more hungry, and 5 o'clock rolls around, 5.30, and it's 6 o'clock, and we got to be back at 7, and all of a sudden the guy comes and knocks on the door, and I'm just not in a good mood, you know what I mean? I'm just not happy. I'm like, I want to be in shakies right now. I do not want to be here. He comes walking through the door, and he sees up on our wall, he sees some scripture verses, <clears throat> And he goes, he goes, that's awesome. He goes, are you guys Christians? I'm like, yeah, but I'm hungry. Like more than Christian, I'm hungry right now. And so, so he sees the scripture where he's like, oh, that's cool. And then Sarah, my wife, um, she is like such a better person than me in every single way. And so she starts asking him about his life. And I'm like, really, we're doing this here? Like we're doing this right now? Like we've been waiting, babe. You don't know what you're missing. And so she is just, uh, you know, she's talking to him and, and finds out about his kid's health and some concerns that they had and whatever. And we were kind of talking. I'm just ready to get out of there. Finally, Sarah and the kids get in the car and, and I'm like, all right, man, um, thank you so much for what you're doing. This is going to be great. We're going to Shakey's. I'll be back in an hour. Awesome. The check for you is waiting on the table. So we go to Shakey's and, you know, eat the pizza and play the video games and get all the diseases and everything. It's just great, right? It's just amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. And, and so it's, it's time for us to head home and and we get inside and we open the door and it's like, it's like we have brand new carpet again. You know what I mean? Like, like you can't even see where the kids peed. You know what I mean? It's just awesome. It's awesome. I'm just kidding. Well, maybe they have. So we're just like, it's awesome. It's so great. The carpet looks so nice and clean. It's amazing. And we're like, this is so cool. And then we get inside and um, on our kitchen table, the check is still there. And so I walk over to the check and um, he had written a little note at the top and it said, hey, it was really great meeting you guys. I want you to give this money to a family that's in need at your church. I was like, that's awesome. I mean, that's a guy who gets it. I mean, that, that's such a cool way of living. He says, man, I am blessed. In whatever way you're blessed, whatever resources you have, whatever life you have, whatever job you're in, whatever experience you're in, there's always something you can find to be grateful for. There's always some blessing. There's always some gift. And you see, the kind of person that God wants you to become is someone who is blessed to be a blessing. Someone who says, man, all that God has given me, I want it to be a gift to the world. I remember I was talking with um, Brian Holland, who heads up our uh, Claremont campus. And God's just doing some awesome stuff at Claremont. It's just so exciting to hear all the amazing stories. And and I was asking him this week about just what's been going on up there. And and he shared about this uh, young adult that he was talking to who was jaded and angry and didn't want anything to do with God. And, And three hours into the conversation, Brian asked this young adult, he says, so what's holding you back? Like, what's, what's really holding you back? This young adult thought about it for a while and texted later and said, you know what, there's nothing holding me back. I'm ready to go all in. You see, the gift that God has given us in total forgiveness, in in total freedom, that we know that we'll be spending eternity with God for those of us that are followers of Jesus. This message is not meant to just remain in here. This is a message that we need to go out in the world with. You see, God created us and and desires that we would become the kinds of people who are blessed to be a blessing. And then lastly, lastly, God desires that we would be someone who tells others who they are. The story gets crazy and Zechariah tells Elizabeth and they're going to have a baby and all of a sudden the baby comes and if you fast forward to verse 65, this whole group of people has surrounded them. And all of a sudden... Zachariah can speak again. It's been nine months and he hasn't been able to speak at all. 
And there's a, there's a, a conversation happening. And we pick it up in 65. The neighbors were all filled with awe and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking what then is this child going to be? Did you hear that? It's literally the question that we're wrestling with this morning. Everyone around this child said, who is this child going to become? What will become of this child? For the Lord's hand was with him. And you see, the kind of person that God wants you to become is someone who speaks life into people, who, who tells others who they are. Not, not just tells them what you want them to do. In fact, the next generation, they don't need you to start by telling them what you want them to do. They need to hear you tell them who they are who they are in God, that they are created in his image, that they are loved, that there is immense purpose and meaning in their lives. And we get a moment here where it's like, it's it's an emotional moment because the crowd's wondering, who is this child going to become? And all of a sudden, the dad speaks up. And I don't know what your relationship was like with your dad. Maybe you had a really great dad. Maybe you didn't have a really great dad. Maybe you were hoping that your dad was going to speak more words of life into you and, and that didn't happen. Or maybe he did a really great job of that. But wherever you find yourself, I wonder if today God wants to speak some more words of life into you. That he wants to tell you who you are. And check out how Zechariah speaks to his son. He says, he says, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of all their sins because of the tender mercy of God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. You know, you know it's like, if I could summarize it this way, you know what Zachariah is saying? He's saying to his son, he's looking at him and he goes, God is going to do something big and you have a part to play. God is about to do something big and you have a part to play. I was thinking about all of our first responders. I was thinking about teachers and and parents, coaches, people who interact with those that are younger than you or that in some kind of need. And we have an incredible mandate and an incredible opportunity to be people who speak life and hope into others. That they can see into people, that can see who they are becoming. Parents, when you're talking to your kids, we've got to be people who say, I see this in you, I see this in you. My wife Sarah does this almost every night as the kids are going to bed. Is She'll just say a blessing over the kids. She'll just tell them they're loved by God, that he has a purpose for them, that he has a journey for them. And wherever you find yourself right now, especially if you're an adult or a student or, and you're maybe looking for those words, look no further than the fact that your God is saying to you, I am doing something big and you have a part to play. The question is, what's that part? And each of us have been uniquely placed in the situations that we're in and in the relationships we're in. I mean, what if, what if God's big thing he wants to do in your marriage is to literally turn things upside down? That a year from now, you'd look back and go, I didn't think we could have that. Or, or maybe it's in your career that God wants to use you to, to reach the people that you manage or the people that manage you. And you go, I didn't even know that was possible. It, it begins, I think, with us becoming people who tell others who they really 
are. I, I saw something, um, I got to be a part of something that just blew my mind. Uh, Al Knight, uh, a member here at this church, he has a grandson named Grant. And last year, Al decided to put on uh, a manhood ceremony for his son. And what he did for this is he got a bunch of uh, other guys and, and other women in the family to surround Grant and to specifically speak words of life and love into him. That at this really critical time in Grant's life to say, hey, you are not what everyone else says about you. You're not what the culture says about you. This is who God says you are. This is what we see in you. This is what it means to be a man. And it was one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had. I want to show you a few photos real quick. First one, this was all of us kind of hanging out, and, and Grant is that young man in the middle. He's about six foot 30, and so he's a really tall dude, um, really cool kid, and, and there's his family, and, and there's Al, his, his grandpa, who had some gifts for him, but the most powerful moment, the most powerful moment was this next one, where around the table, we all sat, and one after the other, we said, Grant, this is who you are becoming. This is who you are. This is what it means to follow God. This is who God is. Don't miss it. And this kid's a really big, strong, tall, awesome kid. And he was weeping like a baby. And he was just so impacted by this. You see, before we tell the next generation what they need to do, we need to tell them who they are. Are you becoming that kind of person? Are you becoming that kind of person that in every situation and interaction, you're going, how can I speak life? How can I offer them a reminder of who God is and how God sees them? Well, fast forward 30 years. And John is a, is a grown man at this point. And he's had a life of his dad constantly telling him, this is who you are becoming. This is who you are becoming. This is who you are becoming. 30 years later, his disciples find John and, and they come in and they're really worried and, and they're really frantic and they say, John, John, we have a problem. We have a huge problem. All those people that were following you, all those people that were listening to you, all those people you were baptizing, they're leaving you and they're beginning to follow Jesus. This is, this, we've got a crisis on our hands, John. What should we do? And, and John just smiles. He just smiles real big and he says, guys, I am full of joy. And they're going, John, you're an idiot. What are you thinking, man? Everybody, everybody who we've been investing in, your tribe, the kingdom that we have been building around you, you as, the, as our leader, everybody is leaving you and they're starting to follow Jesus. We have a problem. And John says, oh, no, no, no. We don't have a problem. This is exactly how it's supposed to go. And then John says this one sentence that I think if we were to internalize and kind of make our life motto, we'd experience joy and hope and contentment like never before. I think if we took these words to heart and said, in my marriage, in my friendships, at work, in the places where it is hardest for me to love and care and believe that anything good could come out of that, these words will be my motto. You see, we've explored what it is that God wants you to become, but how does he want you to become it? It's all right here in this one sentence. John says this, Jesus must become greater and I must become less. 
Jesus must become greater in me and I must become less. Here, here's the thing. Maybe you want to be a better husband or a better father or a better sister or brother or wife or roommate or coworker, whatever. Those are, those are awesome. But what you actually need to focus on, what I need to focus on is this, is that God's deepest desire for you is that you would become more like Christ. That's it. That's his game plan. That's his strategy. That's the trajectory that he's taking you on. That's the path he has for you. That is the journey that he has for your life is that you and I would become every day more and more like Christ. And what I love it is John says, John says that it's not a destination we arrive at, but it's a journey. It's a process. And so you may be farther along in that, promise, in that process. You may be early in that process. But when you and I focus our lives, leverage our lives, anchor our lives in the reality that God's main purpose is to become more of him through us. Man, your marriage is about to change. Your family is about to change. You you get that insult or that, that, that dig and you're about to step in and respond with more of you and less of him. And Jesus will remind you through the words of John, no, 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 it's all about him becoming greater and me becoming less. And so in that moment, you say, Jesus, more of you, less of me. Jesus, more of you, less of me. I mean, what would it look like in the most difficult places of your life if you said, Jesus, more of you and less of me? Guys, I'm the biggest failure in the room when it comes to this stuff. You know what I care about a lot? is what you think about me. I oftentimes want more of me and less of Jesus. Because the road of Jesus can sometimes be painful and challenging and refining. He's pruning me. I mean, this, this passage has messed me up this week. It's caused me to really rethink a lot. But what I'm finding is what John hinted at, that there is a kind of joy and life, and meaning, and purpose, and hope in becoming more Christ and less of ourselves. So as we pray, as you close your eyes, as we pray, if today you're at a place where you're like, Jesus, I want more of you. I want to become more of you and less of me. I want to invite you to just hold your hands open with your palms up as a way of receiving as a way of saying, God, more of you and less of me, more of you and less of me. Heavenly Father, we we acknowledge that the path to true joy and hope and life is in becoming more like you. God, we recognize that you want us to be someone who's faithful in the face of pain, that you want us to become someone who's blessed to be a blessing that you want us to become someone who tells others who they are, but that begins and that ends with us being on a focused journey towards becoming more like you. And so God, that's, that's your job. That's where you come into us and you shape us and clean us and change us. But our job is to be open. And so God, as we hold our hands open, we're just saying, God, more of you and less of me more of you and less of me, more of you and less of me. We love you, Jesus. Amen.